So are you familiar with the TV show Antiques Roadshow? You know the show I'm talking about? It's, it's been around for 20 or so years in the U.S., I think 30 to 40 years in the U.K. I can honestly say I've never watched an episode from start to finish, but I've seen several clips, and the premise of the show has always appealed to me. So if you're not familiar with the show, they will gather antiques experts, bring them into one place, and then they will invite the public to bring all manner of stuff from their house. And they'll, some people will sometimes bring jewelry and art and furniture and, and all sorts of things, and they bring it to these experts. And then the experts can sometimes tell stories behind these objects, but what the people really want to know is, is this worth anything? Is there any value to this? And oftentimes you will hear an expert say something like this, what you have here is a clay pot made of Play-Doh by a third grader. You would have to pay someone to take this from you. What you have here is what we in the business like to call a painting from the Motel 6 collection. It was on every wall, in every room, in every Motel 6 throughout the United States from the late 70s to the early 80s. Most of the time, what they have is not worth all that much except for the sentimental value, right? There's something that means something to those people, and so that's, that's good and that's valuable, but it's not the kind of thing that you're going to sell and make a lot of money. But the reason I'm intrigued, the reason most people are intrigued is because they are watching for those moments, those times when someone brings something in that was a garage sale find, or it was lost hidden away in the attic, or it was something that was passed down from a great-great-grandparent, and the family always knew it was something you kept passing down to the next generation, but no one knew exactly what they had or the worth that was attributed to it. Like this man who brought in a picture that was painted of his great-grandfather, by a family friend, by a friend of his great-grandfather. Now, his great-grandfather, no doubt, lovely gentleman, but no one famous, no one anyone else would know. But the painter who painted it in 1896 was the famed Western artist Frederick Remington. And that painting was worth up to $800,000. Or a school librarian from Cornwall, England, brought in uh, this bronze sculpture. It was donated to the school by the sculptor before the sculptor died. The sculptor, Barbara Hepworth, donated in 1975. And throughout the history of that sculpture in that school, that sculpture mostly sat on a teacher's desk and was used as a paperweight. That paperweight was worth about a million dollars. Or this lady 
who brought in a bunch of old baseball cards and letters that was passed down from her great-great-grandmother who ran a boarding house in Boston in 1871 where players from the Boston Red Stockings stayed. Now, this is just a, a side note for you sports fans out there. What is it about baseball in particular that has several teams from a long time back choosing as their mascot laundry? Why did they choose laundry? Were they sitting around and saying, well, what should we go with as a mascot? Is there, is there some sort of fierce, fast animal that we should choose? Is there some sort of fighting human being we should go with? And the, the person that, that handled all their gear was like, you know, I, I've got an idea. I couldn't help but notice we're all wearing the same color socks. We could go with that as a, as a mascot. I don't know why they went with laundry, but all of those uh, collectibles right there worth about a million dollars. Or this item right here came from a man in Minnesota whose great-grandfather had passed down this pocket watch, a, a, uh, a Patek Philippi pocket watch. That doesn't mean anything to me. I don't know if it means anything to you, but apparently they found that pocket watch was literally one of a kind. Only one was made exactly like that pocket watch. Sold for about $1.5 million at auction. So we've come this morning to the second characteristic of God that is described in Exodus 34. And if you haven't been with us in this series, these verses in Exodus 34 that Karen read for us at the beginning are quoted more than any other verses in other parts of Scripture. Prophets and biblical writers keep circling back to these verses because they convey something critical about the character of God, about who God is. And so they continue to refer to it. They continue to reflect on it. They continue to call on these characteristics of God because they are essential in continuing life in God. And last week we considered the, the characteristic of God, that God is a compassionate God. A word that comes from the Hebrew word, uh, root that talks about the womb, that God feels deeply, the God who births us and carries us and nurtures us and cares for us is a God that feels deeply for his creation. And this week we come to the word gracious. And sometimes as Christians we make the faulty assumption that grace is just a New Testament idea. But God has been a gracious God from the beginning. And this Hebrew word that we translate as grace or gracious comes from the root hen. And sometimes it's translated as grace or when it's an adjective, gracious. But it shows up in other ways in the Old Testament and it gives us a deeper understanding of who God is. So in Psalm 45, the psalmist describes going before the king and quoting, reciting poetry, psalms. But the psalmist says 
that the king is finer, is more handsome, better looking than any other person. But the psalmist also says that the words of the king are finer, that they are eloquent, that they are dripping with grace. This understanding of grace is grace that is beautiful, that is appealing. And this use of grace shows up in Proverbs 4.9 when wisdom is described as a garland of grace and a crown of beauty. In other words, many times in Scripture, grace is described as something that is aesthetically pleasing, aesthetically beautiful. And we use grace like this sometimes, even today. We will describe a person as graceful. So we've had several young ladies who have grown up in our church and are very accomplished ballet dancers. And we had one of them who was here a little earlier, maybe helping in, in one of the, uh, the other rooms, Anna Yates. And if you see someone who is accomplished at ballet, or if you see a ballet troupe, what's one of the ways we describe uh, their performance? It is full of grace. It is graceful. We see the beauty and the power of what they do, the precision in what they do. There is something aesthetically pleasing in their performance. Well, another way this word shows up, and it shows up 45 times or more than 45 times in the Old Testament is translated this way, and it's kind of connected to that, is that the biblical writers will talk about a person finding favor, ken, finding grace in the eyes of another. He found grace in the eyes of his master. She found grace in the eyes of the king. They found grace, favor in the eyes of God. That there is something beautiful and desirable, but, but it goes further than that, right? So that the person sees value and worth and ability and integrity in the other. And the first person in the Bible about which it is said that they find favor in the eyes of God is Noah. Shows up early in Genesis in chapter 6, and you may remember enough of the Noah story to remember that as God is surveying the landscape, he's looking out over the world, what he's seeing is a lot of people that aren't living in the most beautiful, appealing way. God looks out and he sees a lot of wickedness and a lot of rebellion, but when he sees Noah, he sees something appealing. He sees something beautiful. Noah finds favor in the eyes of God in 6.8 because Noah, we learn in verse 9, is a righteous man. He's blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Now, if you keep reading the Noah story, you realize, okay, Noah and his family, they've got some issues too, and I don't really plan to go into that right now. You're, you're welcome to look that up 
on your own. But I, I think it is telling. It is good to know that when God sees good, he finds favor in it. When he sees a person living beautifully, he finds favor and grace in that. When God sees Noah who is living righteously or in justice, and he's living faithfully and blamelessly, he finds favor in that. And that's another way that we see this word being used. So, for example, in Psalm 84, 11, for the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor or grace and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. One of the verses I love to retell at funerals when celebrating a life well lived is from Matthew 25. A God who sees a person who lives in love and compassion and generosity to the overlooked. And we remember the words of Jesus, well done, good and faithful servant. It is good to me that God bestows grace and favor finds value in those who live faithfully. In those times when we walk in justice and compassion. But we also know that's not the full story of the favor of God, of the grace of God. If it stopped there, it would go no further than the way that all of us are when we see someone who lives a good and righteous and upright life, when we see someone that we deem is worthy. But what makes the favor of God stand out is all the times when God extends God's favor, God's grace to people that we would say or the world would say don't deserve it. When God extends favor and grace to the undeserving. So it's not all that impressive in the end to see a Michelangelo and say, now that's a masterpiece. What's impressive is when the attic discovery, when the garage sale find, when that heirloom piece is passed down through generations and you're the only ones that seem to find sentimental value and then someone says no there's more going on there there's something extraordinary going on there that I think others of you have missed and this is one of the ways that finding favor keeps showing up in the Old Testament again and again and again it is when someone of high standing or status or significance recognizes and appreciates the dignity and the value and the worth and the beauty of someone of low standing or low significance so when Esther goes before the king, she begins, if I have found favor in your eyes, because she knows that it's not guaranteed, that she's not on equal footing, that there's not an equal power dynamic in that relationship. And so she's asking for favor. She's asking for grace. Or when Proverbs 14.31 says, he who oppresses the poor taunts his maker 
but he who is gracious to the needy honors his maker. That idea of being gracious, finding favor in the needy is tied to the God who made the needy beautiful and valuable and worthy and priceless, whether anyone else sees it or not. And isn't this what we see in the story of Jesus over and over and over in the New Testament? It is not just that he calls those that everyone thinks would get an invitation to the feast. It's that Jesus keeps inviting in the overlooked and the oppressed and the pushed down and the forgotten and the despised, that Jesus makes room at the table for those that everyone else leaves out of in the invitation. Whether it's someone who's poor, or whether it's someone who's afflicted with some sort of disease that leaves them unclean, or whether it's someone that has a demon, or all the women that he elevates, all the times that Jesus invites in and includes the foreigner over and over, that's the favor Jesus extends in his ministry. That's the grace that he shows. And we know the grace goes one step further. God's favor and grace means that God still finds beauty, still finds value, still pours out goodness and love. Even when the original masterpiece that God created is marred by our own decisions. When our own poor choices have messed things up and our long habits limit the luster and the beauty and the vitality of how, of how God made us. So I want to come back to the world of art that we started with at the beginning. And in just a minute, I want to show you a video that went viral a few years ago. But first, I want you to see a painting. It was purchased at auction by a, uh, an art dealer and historian in the UK named Philip Mould. And he shared a few years ago a, a short video of a partial restoration of this painting. This is a 400-year-old painting, and we don't know who the subject is in the painting. We know she is 37 years old, and the painting is simply described as the lady in red. And it's estimated that about 200 years ago or so, there was a coat of varnish that was put on this painting to try to protect the paint, try to keep the paint uh, from deteriorating over time. But as happens over that lengthy period of time, the varnish began to yellow and discolor, and it dulled the vitality and the vibrancy and the brightness of the original. And so uh, Mould had an expert restorer. He tested to discover just the right kind and amount of solvent to use to dissolve the varnish without hurting the paint. And that is one of the real challenges of grace versus legalism. 
What brings cleansing without bringing destruction and harm in the long term? Uh, And he had this professional show just a glimpse of this process of removing the varnish. Uh, So this is this is the video I want to show you. Let's let's watch. Isn't that stunning and oddly appealing? It's, it's comforting. I could, I could just kind of watch that on loop just again and again. This probably goes without saying, but do not try this at home with your 400-year-old Jacobian-era paintings. That was an expert. They knew what to do and how to use it and the right amount of solvent to use. But I love that image, and I think that is a beautiful image of the full favor, and grace of God. So we have a God that sees the beauty and the desirability in our lives during those stretches where, like Moses, things are clicking, or excuse me, like Noah, things are clicking. When we're living faithfully and righteously in justice during those good periods. God recognizes the splendor in the Michelangelo masterpieces. Well done, good and faithful servant. But God's favor and God's grace extend to the undesirable and the under-recognized. God sees the beauty hidden under years and years and layers and layers of bad habits and poor choices. God sees the splendor through the sin. God still sees the possibility. God still sees the promise. Because God made us. God is the original artist. But even more amazing, God the Maker is also the Restorer. And the grace that loves us where we are and as we are is the grace that empowers restoration. Grace that enables us to live into the vitality and the vibrancy, the brightness 
and the beauty that God designed for us at the beginning when God stamped God's image on our lives and on our hearts. And that's what David prays for and calls to God for in that famous psalm, Psalm 51. You may remember that psalm. That is the psalm that that David utters after his egregious sin against Bathsheba and her husband Uriah. And you will notice when you read the first couple of verses that David calls on three of the five characteristics that are identified in this Exodus 34 passage, that God is gracious, God has steadfast love, God is a God of compassion. Verse 1, be gracious toward me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your great compassion. And as I read these next verses, I I would invite you to just close your eyes. Remember that little video you just watched of 200 years of varnish being pulled away, as David says, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Here's what I want you to take with you as you go through your day today. You are a prized treasure in the eyes of God. And you are a prized treasure in all your impressive times and in all your unimpressive times. God made you beautiful and God remakes you beautiful even when your decisions dull the brightness sometimes. God favors you at all times because God is faithful at all times. God is a gracious God. Let's stand.